This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, joining you once again from my home office via Zoom. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our full catalog of shows are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you will find us. You can also follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and me, at Laura Zarrow. We'd love to know what you want to know and what the issues are that speak to you. One of the issues that speaks to me right now is the importance of speaking up, especially in this next election. So in support of National Voter Registration Day, today's show is all about voting and what we'll all need to know to make sure our votes are counted in November. Let me tee up our next guest, Debbie Walsh. Debbie, welcome back to the show. I have a question for you before we get rolling. How do you pronounce the acronym for the Center for American Women in Politics? Is it C-A-W-P or is it actually COP? Well, you can go either way, but we call it COP, um, although we've had people who call it CAMP and QAP, but it's... <laughs> okay, because I'm dying to like be part of the inside team there. I'm going to call it COP for the day. Okay. And for those of you who are new to it, COP is part of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University and is nationally recognized as the leading source of scholarly research and current data about American women's political participation. Debbie joined the center staff in 1981 and has been its director since 2001. So Debbie, thanks for the work that you do there and thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, Laura. It's fun. So I want to start off with this kind of core concept about why the women's vote is so important. And I'm gathering it's not just because there's a lot of us. Well, it helps that there are a lot of us, um, but it also helps that women vote at high rates. They, you know, while we are all talking about we need more folks to come out and vote and voting is really important, um, the reality is women do vote at higher rates than men do. Um, And for the last number of election cycles, really going back to almost 2004, about 10 million more women uh, than men have been voting in every election cycle. So um, that difference can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the piece that connects to that is the fact that we also know that women vote differently than men do. So since 1980, we've been following a phenomenon in American voting that we call the gender gap, which is the difference in the way men and women vote. Um, And what we have seen consistently over time since 1980, both in presidential elections and major major Senate elections, gubernatorial elections, um, women are more likely to vote for the Democratic candidate than men are and less likely to vote for the Republican candidate than men are. So you can see that in close races, that women's vote, that combination of volume and difference um, can really have an impact on the outcome of an election. But we also need to talk about that there's tremendous variation among women. Yes. I was going to ask that. So um, before we dive into not all women are voting this way. I want to parse out what are the issues that drive women to vote the way that they do in those numbers? 
explore. Um, it largely comes down, uh, we think, to economic issues. Um, just like men, when the Pew Research Center asks men and women about what's the most important issue when they go into the voting booth, they both say the economy. Um, but for women, uh, the economy may mean something a little bit different. Um, we know that women are more economically insecure than men are. They are less employment secure. They have less money saved for retirement. They live longer than men do. So they see themselves at some point needing what's known as that social safety net, whether it's social security or Medicare or family leave or unemployment insurance or some kind of income assistance, whether it's for food or income itself, unemployment insurance. All of these things are things that women imagine themselves needing at some point in their life. And therefore, they are more likely to support the party that is supporting that social safety net. So is part of that um, as I'm processing the, the, I'm connecting the dots between that reality and the lived experience of women. And yeah. that um, if I'm understanding this, men will vote also around economic issues, but it might be taxation. Right. And what's coming home in their paychecks as a primary wage earner, but also as the part of our population for whom most systems are designed and reward. Right. But that women are more vulnerable because of other systemic issues. Exactly. And women are worried about what's coming home in that weekly paycheck because often women are the sole breadwinner in their family, right? They're single parents um, and they're worried about how they're going to make ends meet. Um, healthcare, frankly, falls in as an economic issue in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Because the fear, the terror of what would happen if somebody had a catastrophic illness in my family, how would we pay for this? Um, when we think about it in some ways, it's um, men and women look at the economy and government differently because women may have a different relationship to government. They may see themselves as needing government more, whereas men are more likely to think about how you can cut government, how you can make government smaller, um, which would, you know, when you think about those two alternatives, the government providing support is much more of a democratic value and government being smaller is much more of a Republican value. And there difference. I really appreciate how you're framing it. And I want to dig into it for a little bit because, you know, the things that we're talking about are not new concepts to me, but that um, crystallizing these issues into who needs government and why. Um, and what is it about what the government is? Is it in social programs and systems? Is it um, about workplace protection? What are the layers of reasons why women need a government to protect them in this day and age? It's probably all of those reasons. And I think in a funny way, I mean, you know, when you think about the moment that we are living in right now, um, where we are navigating through the pandemic um, and seeing the role that government can play, should play, and sometimes fails to play, um, that has led us to the position that we are in in this country, um, which, is one of the reasons I think that at, in this moment, when you look at the polling, that overall the Democrats seem to be doing better because there is a kind of collective moment of saying, you know what, 
this is one of those moments where we really need government, that government could play a role that the private sector can't play by itself, that it, it can't navigate all of this by itself, that it needs that government intervention. And therefore you see kind of in a crystal clear way, the value of government. So given that the vulnerabilities that women are experiencing, single moms, um, hourly workers, um, people working without any workplace protections, um, those are all people that are benefiting from a bigger government and more interrelated programs. But as you said before, women are not a monolith. And there are Republican women. We've talked about it before. The reasons that there are active women in the Republican Party and women voting Republican. And it's for an interesting and complex set of reasons. So in this context, what is it that we need to understand about Republican women voters and where some may be pulled in that direction? What's the motivation? Sure. So I think it's important to understand in, in many ways, sort of more broadly, some of the the, the differences among women, right? So race is a big one. Um, you know, we know that women of color, particularly black women, are the absolute backbone of the Democratic Party. Um, and that has to do with economic issues, but also, frankly, social issues um, uh, and the kind of interventions. But again, government playing a role, right? Mm -hmm. The interventions um, in terms of even things, you know, going back to desegregation of schools, um, Voting Rights Act, you know, all of these, all of the pieces that have to do with the social as well as the economic, and obviously those are very interconnected. So Black women are the absolute backbone of the Democratic Party, women of color as well, but particularly Black women. White women, there's more, there is, has been more, um, uh, nuance there in that you have white um, white women who are married, who are do not have a college education, who are more likely to be Republican. Um, you do have white women who are college educated, who have been a pretty, who are married, who are pretty solid have been pretty solid Republican voters, but who have shifted in the last four years um, and maybe even the last six years. We certainly saw that Hillary Clinton did better. She won that vote. She did better than a Democratic candidate has done in the last 20 years with those white college educated women, often called suburban women, although they don't really ever break it down by where they live, but they've been dubbed as suburban women. Um, those women are much more of a swing vote, and that is a, a big part of both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, are going after that vote in this election cycle, as well as on the Democratic side, really trying to shore up that Black women's vote um, and make sure it turns out in numbers that are significant. So while we um, very commonly in the media, the term white suburban women is, are, is getting bantied about, it sounds like the fundamental difference is women who are um, married, not the primary wage earner or a wage earner in the yeah. household, that, that that's a significant, um, that creates a personal reality that will shape the way that you view at policies. Whereas women who are in the workplace supporting kids, um, the primary breadwinner for their household, um, or facing a number of, of barriers that are a result of systemic bias need government in order to fix the systemic bias. Yes. And, and I think 
when you when you frame it in that way, it is also important to understand that white unmarried women um, are more likely to be Democratic voters. So it is about, and this is where we keep coming back to at the root of much of this is our economic issues and that kind of economic vulnerability and and understanding that government can play a role. It doesn't mean that all of these women are using all of these programs. I wanna just add that. It's <laughs> knowing that they are there and available and supported and also understanding that even if they don't use them now, somebody else might need them. <laughs> it, it, it's the um, being able to relate to the experience and bring the empathy to the decision a making. Empathy. A little empathy goes a long way. Right. Indeed. For those of you who just turned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest this half hour is Debbie Walsh, Director of the Center for American Women in Politics, which is based at Rutgers Eagleton Institute of Politics. So, Debbie, one of the things I'm curious about is in the races themselves, we're starting to see some new patterns. While the, the, this split in women voters, some of it's evolving, there's some old patterns in there. But we have many more women candidates than we've had before. And in some cases, we have some um, competitions between women candidates on each major party ticket. Right. So Talk to me about the dynamics there. Yeah. So I don't want to overstate it. Um, you know, the vast majority of candidacies out there, and we, and it's funny because we've never been very intrigued by the idea of two men running against each other, right? That was the norm. And and as more women started to run, you started to see men having women as their, as their opponent in a race. But now we are seeing, as we see more and more women, and frankly, this cycle, seeing more and more women on the Republican side. Last cycle in 2018, we saw record numbers of women running, but it was almost, the records were all set on the Democratic side. In this cycle, in 2020, we are seeing record numbers of Republican women. And that is what's leading us to having a record number of women versus women races, you know, around 44, I think is the number. Uh, but but these are fascinating races for us to watch because, um, you know, there is this sort of myth out there that if we just have women versus women races, we won't even have to talk about gender. Gender won't even come up. But the reality is that gender still is at play. Even gender is at play when two men are running against each other. And you saw it when Donald Trump was running in that crowded field um, with one woman, but everybody else was a man in the primary that he ran in. You remember the way he would talk about Marco Rubio and his tiny little hands. I mean, there was it was pretty straightforward. It was all about it's all about asserting your masculinity, asserting your manliness. What comes up for for women when they run against each other is sometimes that same dynamic comes up. You'll have one candidate who um, I'm thinking about the Senate race back in 2018 when Martha McSally uh, ran against Kirsten Cinema for the seat in Arizona. And Martha McSally was a, a veteran, um, an Air Force pilot. And in her ads, she would show herself in uniform in front of a big fighter jet. And she portrayed her opponent um, as a kind of a, a bit of a flaky little girl. They, she showed photographs of, of her opponent in a pink tutu when she was at a demonstration when she was in college. Um, so using those gender tropes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
still come up even if you have women running against each other. We're seeing it in elections this year where we're seeing women who are um, more conservative women who are in their ads are using guns as imagery, a very masculine image talking about um, you know, using their guns, defending this country, defending themselves and their families, very kind of a asserting a masculine uh, image. And you also have women talking about their families, right? Their, and their role as mother, using motherhood, which again is a very gendered image. So it doesn't go away just because you have two women running against each other, but it is absolutely a sign of progress as we see more and more races with two women in them. Absolutely. The thing that I find fascinating, but also kind of infuriating, is that none of these distinctions have anything to do with their values, their platform, the issues in their communities. It's about how to reach voters. And it's about the way that the campaigning is really massive forms of advertising to try and align with um, voters' gender issues, which are still, um, they're not only talking to women voters when they do that, are they? They're not only talking to women voters, but hopefully in that mix, voters do learn something about them. So if you use the the imagery of motherhood, but you're talking about as a mother, here are the things I care about. Hopefully you are learning, voters are learning something about the issues that this woman as a mother cares about. What I also find fascinating is that uh, you know, not many election cycles ago, women would have been very reluctant, even if they were a mother, mm-hmm. to talk about the fact that if they still had young children at home, to talk about that, because the instant reaction would have been, well, wait a minute, if um, if you have young kids at home, why are you running off to go be in Congress or in the state legislature? Who's going to take care of your kids? And they get judged for being bad mothers. Right, for being a bad mother. But what we saw in 2018 was a real shift. And I think it was we saw younger women running and we saw women with young children running and embracing that, talking about their kids, talking about the fact that because they have children and they're facing many of the challenges that their voters are facing Mm -hmm. with their families and making ends meet and all of the challenges that come with raising a family in this world, they were more relatable, they were more real, they were more authentic. And I think women are now able to run much more authentically with all these aspects of their lived experience shown. So when we have veterans who are running, who are celebrating their military careers and demonstrating, um, certainly trying to um, put out the trope of strength equal to that of a man, um, but it's also uh, street cred that they earned. Absolutely. And that's been one of those things that men have had as an item on their resume for decades that women, frankly, didn't. Um, You know, we didn't see women in combat, certainly. And even if they were in the military, we're not seeing that translate into running for office. And one of the things we also saw in 2018 were women who, we have quite a few women who are now in Congress, who are either veterans or have been in the CIA or law enforcement, they are bringing to the table a set of credentials that have been pretty much exclusively male, but are tied to leadership and power and knowledge, uh, like a foreign policy knowledge, a military 
acknowledge that women have not been afforded and women always have to prove themselves more so than men. And so having that credential is really quite a powerful thing for women candidates coming along. So it is about much more than demonstrating a kind of masculine kind of strength. It's about a whole set of skills that are connoted by it. What about um, the age of these candidates? We're also seeing a lot of younger candidates emerge. How is that affecting and being perceived by voters? We're definitely seeing it appears a drop in the age of the candidates, or at least more women who are running who are who are younger. So it we're even seeing women who, you know, pretty much fresh out of college um, who are running for office now. Um, and I think that one of the things that I have found so refreshing about them, um, I'm thinking about an Abigail Spamberger. Uh, I'm sorry, not an Abigail Spamberger. Um, I, in Iowa, uh, a woman who's in Congress, Abby Finknauer, a very young woman who's also almost as young as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the young woman everybody knows. But Abigail, uh, Abby Finkbeiner is somebody who talked about the fact that she came, she was, run, she was in the state legislature, the youngest woman in the Iowa state legislature, with a tremendous amount of student loan debt. Um, And in the old days, you would never want to talk about having debt because you're running for Congress where you control the purse strings. You know, how could you carry this debt? But guess what? Everybody, so many people, either they have that debt or their kids are Mm -hmm. sad with this incredible student loan debt. It made her accessible, it made her real, and it meant she understood the problems that they were facing. So these young women coming in are bringing a whole new set of experiences, but they're willing to talk about them. And that's part of the difference. And and some of them, they have young children, they're talking about having young children. They're not, and they're talking about all the value that they bring because they're younger, because they're raising kids, because they have student loan debt. I mean, all of these. They they share the experience of the people they're representing. Absolutely. And that authenticity is something that men have been able to share, but women have been much more cautious about um, because they're being judged in so many ways that you want to try to take away as much of that as you can. And I think the conventional wisdom among political consultants was, don't talk about your young kids, wear this button-down suit, try to look as much as you can. Like, <laughs> right. Don't talk about the fact that you're, you bring anything special to the right. table. Go be a- yourself, except for all the ways that you're a woman. But don't really, right. Right. Um, so I want to talk about, in a different way, with the few minutes that we have left, um, you have this marvelous way that you can peer through the clutter and see the the multiple dimensions to these issues. We have voters out there who have to peel, peel, you know, get through some clutter themselves. What advice do you have for people who are trying to sort through the messaging they're getting, the information that's out there, and so that they can go to the polls as really informed voters? So part of me wants to say, just stay off social media. (laughs) I feel that in that universe, it's really hard to weed out the, the, the crazy from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, truth is probably too, 
too big of a term for this, but to try to really find out where, where these candidates are on issues. I mean, I think you need to find some really reliable and credible news sources that are you trust, whether you know it's the Philadelphia Inquirer or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal um, or the Washington Post, um, but find a one or two of those that you trust and really spend some time reading them. I would go to the websites of the candidates that are running um, and take a look at them, read where they stand on the issues. Um, most candidates have long position papers on things, may not be the most interesting thing to read, but you should spend some time reading them. And then I would also look at who you trust and respect in the world and see who they're endorsing and who they are supporting. Um, I, there is just so much information out there um, that it is overwhelming. But I would say that it is so critical. When I think about we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of human suffrage and the fact that women were not given the right to vote. They fought tooth and nail for it. Women of color were denied the right to vote long after the suffrage amendment passed. The struggle, the civil rights struggle in order to make the ballot accessible. And even now, I mean, there's so much, there's so many barriers that are put up to try to keep people from voting. It is a, it is such a powerful tool um, and these elections have implications for our lives in every possible way. And, you know, we have to make informed decisions and we have to go out and turn out and vote. Debbie, I couldn't agree with you more and I couldn't thank you more for joining us. People want to learn more about your work. Where can they find you? They can go to cop, C-A-W-P dot Rutgers dot E-D-U. And we have lots of resources and information there. Fantastic, Debbie. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 